0: Um, we're looking at uh, Luke 18, uh, verses uh, 9 to 14, a short but uh, potent passage from our Lord Jesus. Linda, will you bring it down just a little bit? Is that right? All right. Luke 18, starting in verses, uh, verse 9, uh, this is the inspired word of the Lord. He also told, thus. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one Pharisee and the other tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus: God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. That's great. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we ask that you to be our teacher now, that you would send your Holy Spirit uh, to open your word to us and to apply it to our lives. We ask that you convict us of our sin, and as you convict us of our sin, you would drive us to the Savior, Jesus, and that we would find out that there is good news, there is hope for souls, and uh, there's so much darkness in our hearts uh, that uh, we're not even aware of. We ask that your word would bring light to us. I pray that you make us into a church by your word, a church uh, that is not self-righteous, but a church uh, that rests and takes joy in the gospel and free grace that we have in Christ, and that that joy would cause us to love one another, to love you, to follow you, and uh, so teach us the truth of the gospel now, and uh, we ask this in the name of our Savior, Jesus. So, uh, we are looking at this passage that we're looking at today is very close to the heart of the whole vision uh, for this church. Um, you know, for many people, you know, when you come to a church, uh, you come into an environment that's, uh, like this, various sizes, one of the most important things about a church that you, know, you can't even pinpoint what it is, there's a certain mood or atmosphere to a church. And you know it pretty quickly if it's there or not. You know, some. There can either, a church can either have a a warmth and a a joyfulness and a a relational, welcoming um, uh, love about it, you know, that that you you can't pinpoint where it is, but you just feel that it's there. There's a kind of energy about it. Or, you know, churches can be very kind of dour or or rigid or cold or or lifeless. And actually, um, you know, for many people, many people have mixed feelings about Christians in general. Um, they would say, you know, on the one hand, they know Christians, and they say, you know, I know some, some Christians, and just so attracted to what they have. They have this faith, they, they believe that there's some purpose that they're a part of, they have this connection with God, and it's, you know, the divine, and, and oftentimes there's a joy and there's a love about them, they care about people, and yet oftentimes those same people have, think about Christians, that Christians are... Are self-righteous, they think they're better than everyone, they're they're superior, they think that they know everything, and uh, and that they're better than everyone else in the world. It's very strange that you can have these mixed, opposite feelings about the same group of people. And, you know, if that's kind of an obstacle for you, why, why how can that be? How can this one book, or this one, you know, one Jesus create two such different kinds of people. What's interesting about the Bible is that the Bible anticipates that this is the way the church is going to be. This is the way Christians are going to be. Jesus anticipates it. You know, He begins this, uh, this uh, parable by saying, uh, uh, verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray. You know, it's a great classic beginning to a parable. Two men go up in the temple to pray. Here's two men who are doing the exact same thing. They're two religious people. They believe the same book. They go to church together. And yet Jesus says that one of them is desperately lost. and has no idea what he's doing. And the other one is approved by God, is cherished by God. They believe the same thing. They go to the same church. And yet they're radically different. What's the difference between them? Well, um, uh, Tim Keller has, uh, I think the difference is what Tim Keller calls uh, the problem of righteousness problem of righteousness. Now what is righteousness? I know it's kind of a religious word. Um, <coughs> on the one hand, righteousness is, uh, you know, maybe one of the most famous kind of summaries of righteousness in Micah 6.8. What does the Lord require of you? But to, to act justly, to love and mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. It's this beautiful holistic life of treating people justly, seeking ways to be kind, and walking humbly in faith. It's just kind of a whole, whole life of, of living a certain way. But in the Bible, righteousness is more than just being a good person, it's actually a status. And this is the important thing. You know, throughout the Bible, people are divided up into the righteous and the wicked. You're either, you know, you're it's a status. Which are you? Are you a righteous person or are you a, a, a wicked person? Are you a good person or are you a bad person? And uh, that question: how can I be one of the righteous? How can I have that status that I know I'm a good person? I'm approved, I'm doing things right. That is one of the deepest questions that came are asking. It's one of the deepest questions that you and I are asking. If you're a religious person or not a religious person, how can I know that I'm, that I'm good, that I'm living right, life right? And uh, it's that question uh, that these these two characters in this parable, uh, the, the Pharisee and the tax collector, it, represent two ways that Pharisee, the self-righteous way, the tax collector, the gospel righteousness way. And um, in these two things, self-righteousness and gospel righteousness, is, you know, in the first, self-righteousness contains everything that is kind of horrifying and, uh, and repulsive to people about Christianity, is really wrapped up in this idea of self-righteousness, and everything that's kind of enchanting and attractive and beautiful about Christianity is wrapped up in the gospel righteousness. And this is a big thing for us as a church. How we answer this question of, as individuals and as a community, how can I be one of the righteous, how we answer that question, will determine the mood and the atmosphere of this church. How we interact with one another. How our relationships are. So, two things. Self-righteousness and gospel righteousness. Uh, we're going to look at both of them. So first, uh, self-righteousness. Now, um, Luke begins... This parable by saying by giving these kind of two descriptors of, of what self-righteousness is. He says this um, Jesus told, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Okay, these are the two descriptions of what self-righteousness looks like. Uh, trust, uh, trust in themselves that they were righteous and, and treated others. With uh, con- contempt. And these two things are very uh, very closely related. So first, they trusted in themselves that they were righteous. What does that mean? Um, it means that uh, we actually think that our own power and strength, we can actually do what God requires us. We can actually meet God's law, the requirements that God has in the Bible. We can actually do those things. That's what it means to trust in ourselves that we're righteous. Now, now I want you to picture in your head you know, act, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. This beautiful picture of what a person can be. Uh, imagine that beautiful picture of what righteousness is. And then I want you to listen to how this Pharisee talks and how he describes his righteousness. Listen is what he says verse 11. Compare these two things. This is amazing. Verse 11. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes. You know, he's trading, acting justly, loving mercy, and walking humbly with your God. He's traded that for a new kind of standard of, I fast twice a week, and I tithe. You know, which is more impressive to you? Uh, he's, he's traded... Uh, he has transformed the requirements of God to be something that make him look good. Let me say, you know, C.S. Lewis has a uh, a number of places, he talks about how in every generation, uh, cultures adopt certain pet virtues. Certain things that are kind of their favorite virtues of things to be, you know, a place like Bellingham, our pet virtues are caring for God's creation, um, uh, social justice and caring for the poor. These are kind of emphasized and highlighted above all other kind of virtues that these are the most important ones. And, uh, you know, it can happen in other cultures, you know, in other eras. It's been like patriotism or, or you know, maybe some kind of uh, sexual fidelity and family values. Whatever it is, different cultures grab onto certain pet virtues. And you know that? That's what we do as individuals. We take certain parts of God's law that we happen to be good at. hard. I, you know, I do my job well. Um, you know, whatever it is, I, I'm generous with my money. Um, I, I have good doctrine. I know the Bible really well. We take certain things and we emphasize those, and they say these are the things that really matter to God. The things that make me look good. And so we, tr- we trade in God's version of righteousness for our version of righteousness, and we minimize it, right? Um, and uh, why do we do that? Why, why you know, act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with God? is so beautiful. Why would we trade in some pared-down, you know, shrunken virgin for that? Why would we do that? It's because we know we can't do what God requires of us. You know, take love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Try, try to do that for a day. Just try one day. Try for an hour to do it. Let alone a decade or a lifetime, Right? There's no way we can do it. Uh, it's beautiful, and so when we're—if we're, we're going to try to create our own righteousness and, be, and say I can meet God's standard, I have it within myself to do it. The only option is for us to pare down God's righteousness to something that makes us look good, and that's what we see the Pharisees doing here. But there's another consequence to doing that, to trusting ourselves that we're righteous, is that it says that the Pharisees treated others—they treated others with contempt. <laughs> We trust in ourselves that we're righteous. We will begin to treat other people with contempt. Um, uh, and you know, Luke makes this point in verse 11. He talks about how how uh, the Pharisee is standing by himself. You know, and, uh, he's, he he doesn't have any friends in church, right? He's standing by himself. No one wants to be by him. And he goes on to say, uh, "God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even tax collector." You know, he's showing contempt for sinners. And um, and so it's not only that we take the things that we're good at, our priorities, and and, mag, uh, and kind of overemphasize the things that we're good at, but we we take other people's moral failings and we exaggerate them and multiply them and make them more, much worse than they are. You know, uh, I I read this book this last year called uh, Leadership and Self Deception. It's kind of a business book actually for corporations you know one of the big movements that's happening in, in the business world in terms of leadership is my, many more kind of ceos and things like that are thinking a lot of, more about how corporations how people the relationships within corporations how do people interact with one another uh, that that's what makes a healthy corporations so that people actually know how to treat each other well and uh, this is what basically on it's very different than most kind of leadership books for business people And the guy who's writing the book, one of the key illustrations that he uses in the books, he talks about when he was a young father and uh, he he and his wife, they had this uh, baby and they're lying in bed and it's one in the morning and the baby starts crying. And he's lying there and he wakes up and he hears the baby and he and his wife are are pretending that they're asleep, They're, they're both asleep, you know, I've never done this Uh, (laughs) with any of my five kids um, they're pretending that they're asleep and he knows in his heart he's like you know I really should go get the baby I should go be the one to go take it and he decides not to do it he decides I think I'm going to just pretend to be asleep and as he's lying there he starts thinking about his wife and and as she's lying there he begins to think about all the reasons that she's a bad wife she doesn't do anything she doesn't respect she doesn't, uh, she doesn't help around the house. I'm doing, I'm doing it. And all these things, and what the guy was observing was he's saying, I was the one who didn't go get the baby. And because I didn't do what I was supposed to do, what that created in me was a contempt for her, a bitterness for her. He's like, what's going on? Why am I not at her? Because I was the one who didn't go get the baby. What's going on? That him not getting the baby triggered a contempt for her and magnifying all of her flaws and exaggerating them Blowing them out of proportion, and what he was saying was, he realized that when he, didn't get the, when he didn't go get the baby, he realized that his moral performance went down like this. And if he was going to maintain his status of I'm one of the righteous, he's going to have to bring her down here. That's the only way he can do it. And so he just, in his heart, he just starts loading her with contempt. And that's exactly what you see happening with this uh, uh, with this Pharisee that if we're not righteous, and yet we're hungering for that status to be able to know that I'm a good person, I'm a righteous person, the only way we can do that is by heaping contempt and bringing other people down to us. Actually, there's another really interesting illustration in this book where uh, this woman is talking about how her uh, her son, who's a teenage son, came to her to see if he could borrow her car. And she really didn't want to let him borrow. It. And even though she felt like she should, she didn't want to let him borrow So she said she gave him a really an earlier uh, curfew than he usually has. It was ten thirty, and uh, she knew that that was kind of a, a way to get back at him for borrowing the car. And so he leaves with the car. He has to come back at ten thirty, and she's spending the whole the next several hours just stewing about her son and talking to her husband about how you know all the things that the son is doing wrong. She's just stewing over it, and she noticed that at ten twenty nine, when she heard the car pulling. He actually came home on time. She felt a disappointment. She wanted him to fail. She wanted him to come home so that she could just stew in that contempt frame. And that's what happens that when we trust in ourselves for righteousness, we actually find satisfaction in other people's failures. That is, can you imagine what that means? Is that when we trust in ourselves that we're righteous, it turns us into a monster. We want people to fail. We see all people's failures and we magnify them. It's a terrible tragedy. And what Jesus is saying um, is that uh, throughout the Bible, the reason Jesus has parables like this for us is that as Christians, you know, we have we have God's truth, uh, we have the Bible, we have the law of God. There is going to be a tremendous temptation for us to trust in ourselves that we're righteous and to become self-righteous. So the good news is, though, Jesus shows us another way that's just like fresh air, the gospel righteousness. Instead of self-righteousness, there's another way It's called gospel righteousness. It's not something that we do for ourselves, it's something that God gives to us. And that's our second point, gospel righteousness. Now, in the same way that uh, self-righteousness comes through trusting in ourselves, gospel righteousness comes through Jesus. It doesn't come through us, it's a gift through Jesus. And in the same way that uh, self-righteousness causes us to treat others with contempt, gospel righteousness actually allows us to be humble. It frees us to be humble towards other people. So let me share what I mean. First, gospel righteousness comes through Jesus. Now, if you're here and uh, and you're not a Christian, or you say, you know, I'm not sure, I want to have faith, I'm interested in faith, how does that work? What what happens? to become a person of faith. You know, what, what's the transition? What, what does it look like to, you know, have a conversion and become a Christian? Well, I think Jesus gives us a very simple and compelling and beautiful picture of here of what the Christian life is. Very simple, okay? This is what it is. Verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. One of the great lines of the Bible, great pictures of the Bible. This is what it is to be Christian, is to beat on your breast and say, God, I'm a sinner. I can't trust myself for righteousness. All I have is your mercy. All I can hope for is your grace. And it turns out that God wants to give us grace. That's what he wants to do. He wants to give us grace, and he is inviting us to come to him um, uh, this way. And um it's really important to understand what this tax collector, this tax collector is actually very theologically sophisticated in this little statement. Um, that phrase where he says, God be merciful to me, a sinner, that little phrase be merciful, it's a Greek word halaskomat, which means make atonement for me. God make a or if you know the word propitiation, which means you know appease, be appeased for me. And atonement, what atonement is it comes from the word, you know, at one minute. To so make atonement means to become one again. He says, I know that you, you expected me to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with you. And I know I can't even do that for a day in my life. I want to be a one with you again. Make a way for me to be a one with you again. To be at peace with you again. And, uh, and in the Bible, the way that God makes atonement for us, it, it provides atonement for us, is always through a substance. So in the Old Testament, right, you know, a, a worshiper would be coming and you know, he's sinned against God and he's going to bring a spotless lamb and he put his hands on the spotless innocent lamb and there's kind of this picture of I'm transferring my sin onto this spotless lamb and then the lamb dies in his place and kind of is substituted for the, for the sinner. And this is all a picture of what Jesus did for us. That Jesus was the one who made it. told me this is what he's crying out for. He's crying out for a substitute, someone that would die in my place to reconcile me to God. They kind of you know uh, you know help understand how amazing what Jesus' death on the cross is in our place. Uh, how amazing this is. Um, Shannon and I saw uh, I think it was a couple years now. We saw a movie called Man on Fire. It's a Denzel Washington, you know, shooting up um, movie, and uh, it's about Denzel Washington's kind of this ex-CIA, and he's killed all these people in his life, and he's he's an alcoholic and suicidal and Um, One of his friends says, "You know, you should go. There's this uh, this girl down in Mexico City who needs a bodyguard. You should go. It's good money. Go be her bodyguard." So he goes, and he's kind of this. He's got this thick skin. He's you know he doesn't doesn't make friends with little girls, kind of thing, you know. And then of course the little girl is very innocent, and and she brings him out, you know, and uh, and he you know he comes to really love this little girl that he's that he's uh, a bodyguard for, and then she gets kidnapped. And so the, a lot of the movie, he's going after the bad guys and he's telling the little girls he's shooting them and stuff. And, uh, and so everyone's dying. And, and, and so finally the bad guys are like, we don't, want anyone, we don't want anyone else to die. So you know, here's here's the deal. We'll give you the girl if you give us you so that uh, you die and we'll set her free. And so that at the end of the movie, there's these two cars on the opposite side of the bridge and, and the, they trade places and the guy goes over Denzel Washington goes and goes into the hands of the enemies, and the girl is set free. In some ways, you know, you say, "Wow, this picture of substitution," but it's actually the opposite of the gospel. Because at the end of the movie, you're saying the girl's the innocent one; she shouldn't be taken by, she shouldn't die. She should be the one to go free. He's this—he's this, the guy who's been murdering people his whole life. Who was an alcoholic? He's the one who should uh, should die. And so, really, at the end, you say, "You know, this is a fair trade." I'm glad she's going free. She deserves it. And yet the gospel is the exact opposite. Jesus is the innocent one. And he's the one who hands himself into death. He's already free and he hands himself in his death so that we can go free. That's what this tax collector is crying out for. I need a substitute and I don't deserve it. I need to go free even though I deserve it. And what Jesus does is he gets the sin that we deserve. And we get his righteous status. That he deserves. He deserves the righteous status. We deserve the sin and it's a substitution. And that's how he makes it to him. And here, what's being, what is being a Christian is simply doing what this tax collector says, beating on his chest and says, have mercy on me, a sinner. I can't be righteous. I need a substitute. And I'll tell you um, um, the gospel righteous, righteousness is a free gift. God's acceptance, that status before God is something you can't earn, it's something you can't work for, it's only something that you can receive by free grace from God. Well, this is the other thing that it does, is that when, you, when we pursue, approach God this way, is, is that instead of being self-righteous, admitting that we can't do what God demands of us, it'll, it frees us and allows us to be humble. And, um, you know, and you can see that fairly obviously, right? If you think that you're a righteous person, you say, I do God's law, Of course you're going to look down on someone, you know, who sins in ways, you know, sins against your pet virtues, you know, they don't do these things that you think are particularly important, of course you're going to look down on them and despise them, but if you say, God accepts me just by pure free grace, how how am I going to look down on anyone, even the worst sinner who comes in the door, I'm going to say that's me, and there's a, it it creates a deep sense of humility in us, but I'll tell you, this Pharisee, this Pharisee lives in all of us. You know, we're a mixture of these two guys. And the fact is, we do, many of us have been Christians our whole lives, we've been trusting Jesus our whole lives, and we still trust ourselves for for righteousness. And we still look down on people. And the good news is, do you know who, the, who this parable was for? Who is this parable for? It was for the Pharisees. It was for these people who, who trusted themselves that they were righteous. And Jesus is inviting them to stop being a Pharisee and just come and beat on your chest and say, and beat on your chest and say, God, I'm I'm a sinner who shows contempt for people, who looks down on people, that even Pharisees can come and and find free grace and find a substitute. He invites Pharisees and tax collectors to both come this way through Jesus. And to humble us. And I'll tell you that when we do that, when we as a church, when we answer the question, how can I be righteous? We say, it's not through me, it's only through Jesus. We create an atmosphere of humility. We create an atmosphere where people can even say to us, I'm a sinner. I need a substitute. I'm way worse than i have ever imagined. And, uh, and let me just tell you, this is where new life is. This is where joy is. This is where gentleness is. This is where, uh, this is where kindness this is where compassion is, is only when God's made compassionate to us first. So let me just encourage you, go to Him as a sinner. Beat on your chest that he will receive. Oh Lord, we thank you for giving us this passage. That you have provided a substitute. You've provided atonement, and that you want to be at one with us. You want atonement. You want to be at peace with us. Give us the faith to embrace the free grace that you've offered us in Jesus. And I pray for anyone here who um, has not embraced that free grace before, I pray that your Spirit would uh, give them the courage show them the joy and the light that is in Jesus, and um, I pray that you reveal yourself to them in your goodness, that you can be trusted. So we uh, thank you for the good news of the gospel, and we pray that uh, many more here in Bellingham would come to hear and believe it, we ask